started uh, just a couple of things. Um, we, we talked about just, just pray for Pastor Jody and her household as they're kind of navigating um, the situation that they're uh, dealing with the medical stuff. I'd love prayers for our household, um, just that the, the sickness that's in our house would leave quickly. Um, but uh, Pastor Ken today is helping out one of our sister churches, the West Campus. He is preaching uh, for Anthony Jones. Um, we love those guys over there. Uh, they wanted to have him out, and so um, they uh, have invited him, and he's over there preaching this morning. So just pray that Pastor Ken would bring whatever anointing um, and whatever word he is supposed to bring into that situation. Um, and then uh, as a result of that, to the engagement highlight that he brought up last week, which was to collect grocery cards for the engagement team so that they can give those out to people. Grocery cards, I'm not sure if there is a specific amount, but if you have those grocery cards today, um, you can drop those off at the Connection Center um, right outside as you go out the sanctuary to the left. You wanna make sure that everyone knew um, to bring those to him so that we will have those on hand to be able to give out to people for groceries. Um, and then uh, just know that our elders, this last week we did our, our annual elder retreat and so um, pray for us. We're, we're rejuvenating, reconnecting over the summer, thinking about the future of what's next at Common Ground Northeast, praying. We prayer walked the campus here for about half an hour and then asked God if there was anything that he shared with us. So be praying for us as elders as we're leading. Um, and then uh, this last um, it would have been after Sunday a week ago, after our service a week ago, we gave a formal update on our youth ministry, um, and I'm going to put another, like a video version of that out. We don't have time to cover all the details here, but because we were busy with the elder tree, I didn't have a chance to get that out. So look forward to that in the youth ministry. Just a couple of little teasers. Um, we are uh, getting our calendar and stuff ready and relaunching the youth ministry here, um, just like we are the rest of our ministries around September. Um, and so when we get that out to you. We are going to be changing the time so it's not right after service. It'll be from 6 to 8 on Sunday evenings. So parents, um, get those on your calendar. Be there. I'm literally going to wear this t-shirt every Sunday until then, okay? To make sure you all know, we have 32 students representing our youth ministry. If we all show up, that's a party, okay? Um, and and, and um, one of the fun things that we get just happens to be in this season is that we have grown out of one of the rooms for our children's ministry that is connected to the youth room. And so we are inheriting that entire room that is often partitioned off, I think, for toddlers on a regular basis. So that being said, we're going to have an opportunity to do some renovations, take up some more space, create an identity for our youth that is just our own and a part of this building that is able to be used. What I was also, and this is half joking, half not, um, that means I got some room to put a foosball table. So if anyone has a foosball table you're trying to offload to someone, I'm your guy. Oh, wow, we really have it? Done. Anyone have a uh, air hockey something? Eh? Eh? All right, Someone, I hope no one's mad in your house on the other side of that donation opportunity. <laughs> um, but all of this to say, we've got some big things coming. We just announced that to, um, to, in, a, in a meeting to our, our youth parents. We'll get that second announcement so you get all the details coming up. Um, hopefully, I'm able to get it out by Tuesday here this week. So just keep an eye out. We're also looking for volunteers um, to help out with it, sponsors. We have the, the existing sponsors that are already in place, but um, we want to um, get some other people to donate, and we want to provide food every time at dinner for that um, gathering, every time we have it. Um, and so we need people to um, come to me and let me know days that you maybe will be able to drop off food for us um, for that. So just know it's coming. Um, 
and I'm repping the youth for every Sunday until that launch day happens. So if I, if I miss a day, come ask me, why didn't you wear the, sh- the shirt, man? Um, that almost sounded like a cuss word, so. Uh, anyways. Um, okay. Well, it's good to have you all here. I'm, I'm, I, my name is Eric. I'm the lead pastor here at Common Ground Northeast. Um, it's good to be here. We have been doing Ephesians all summer long, and um, we're, on, we're probably three quarters of the way through it, and then we'll be finishing up here in the next few weeks so that we can um, be ready for a new series that's going to be launching in the second week of September. Um, and if, uh, if you've been tracking with us, um, there's some really cool stuff that God has been bringing to light, this idea of worlds colliding um, that we get to see in, in, the, um, in the context of our, our old identity clashing with the new gospel identity. Um, two ethnicities, the Jew and the Gentile ethnic groups that are now clashing together and having to negotiate their culture. And then this idea that the physical world we typically operate in is merging, clashing, is, is simultaneously overlapping with the spirit realm. And so we talked a little bit about the, the, what that means in the context of the city of Ephesus. Um, and so we're going to transition now, uh, or we transitioned about two weeks ago into um, the, the two halves of this letter that Paul wrote. One is, here's some truth for you to take in. The second half, literally the first three chapters, the, the, the last three chapters are all about what do you do that, how do you, how do you implement that into your life? And so we're continuing that today. Um, as we start, this is something that it reminded me of. Um, one of the things that I've always been kind of this, I guess, an amateur appreciator of is systems theory. Um, now, I'm sure if, you, if you're an engineer, if you've had any, um, you know, some kind of training in this, I'm not going to do it justice. So uh, correct me later, uh, but just let me slide during this next few minutes, all right? Systems theory is, and this is just the definition, the academic definition, the study of systems which are cohesive groups of interrelated and interdependent components. Every system has boundaries, is influenced by its context, is defined by its structure, functions in a role, and is expressed through its relations with the other components in the system. Okay, that's the academic version. Let me, the, the, the illustration that helped me when I first learned about this, I, I might have mentioned this at some point in a sermon before, if I were to take eight or ten of you here, and each of you had a string attached to all, all the other people in this group, and I were to grab one person and just jolt them like three or four feet, Everyone else in there would be jolted with them because they're all connected, they're interrelated. And so it's the illustration is that no matter whether we want to be autonomous beings from each other, if you're in a system, you are connected with each other and it has um, uh, intended and unintended effects when something is introduced that is different than the rest of that. There's this picture that I found online that I feel like is, is kind of helpful um, when you think about systems because they look different. We've got a bunch of people, some are gathered, some are big, some are small. There's systems within the systems. Maybe that's not quite represented here. You've got some wanderers around. And go ahead and just leave this picture up as we talk about this. Because what I want you to see is that there are systems that we're all operating on on, on a regular basis through, right? Some of them are big, some of them are small. There's social systems. There's um, uh, technology systems. The environment is a really good example, right? If you ever heard the classic example, you have a rat problem so you introduce some cats. Well, eventually you have a cat problem and you have to introduce some other predator, a canine or something like that. Well, eventually then you have a dog problem, right? So you can't just introduce something flippantly without thinking through the ramifications. And when I was learning about this, I literally had a friend next to me who was in IT and he said, oh, this is my job. I'm like, what's your job? I am the person who looks for and anticipates system blowouts. 
And he went on to tell me, explain to me, like when you enter anything, when you introduce anything into a system, there is unintentional and intentional side effects, and it might be negative, it might be positive. My job is to look for the negative blowouts and mitigate those things so that they don't happen or cause the least amount of damage to the overall system. So as humans, we all belong to the system that is called Indianapolis. You also probably belong to a family system. You also probably belong to a work system. You also, social system. You also probably work, it it could be school. All of these different systems that are involved. But what I want you to kind of do is apply that now to what Paul has been doing to us because they were in this city system called Ephesus. And there is these two overlapping worlds that we've talked about, but now think about it in the system idea. There is the physical realm with social and economic systems, moral and ethical systems at place, judicial systems, the Jewish system, the Gentile system. And then you have the spirit realm that's operating that we talked about with these Elohim, right? That we often call angels, but the Elohim, there's different systems there working as angelic messengers to help do the things and and, and portray the messages of God. There's a cherub and seraphim social circle right do they hang out after work do they go for happy hour i don't know it was kind of a joke y'all are like not having it this morning all right whatever just just kidding um the divine council these direct people that that you even see god consulting with not because he lacks knowledge but because he can and he wants to bring other people into it and he's sitting there with this group of angelic elohim hosts i should say that are, and he's like, well, what, what should we do about this Job character? And the bad Elohim comes in, the Satan, and he says, I want to vet this guy. Let me do it. All right, let's have a conversation. The divine council has a discussion. They decide to let it happen. All right, so we have all of these systems at work. And then the, the system of the bad Elohim, those who left with the Satan to serve, to create a world outside of the system that God created originally. They have a system of lies and perversions, a system working against the order that God initially created. And so early on in the Garden of Eden, God had a perfect system. It had no problems with it. Things were fruitful, teeming with life. Things were ordered the way they should have been doing, the the way that they should have been operating. The sun was doing its job and the moon was doing its job. The earth was doing its job. All of the cycles and systems that were supposed to happen worked properly. And that was the system of the Garden of Eden. And then in Genesis 3, we see that there is a new system implemented that disrupts the one that God had put together. Now, our job is to be representatives catch this, of the first system after the bad system so that we can reintroduce the first system in a new way. And what you're going to see is as Paul talks about this, he's going to refer to that bad one as the old one, all right, and this one as the new one or the kingdom of heaven, the ways of the world or the kingdom of heaven, the old system and the new system. And it is meant to be a, a resemblance of the Garden of Eden, but it is also meant to be a course correction of the fallen, disordered system that was implemented. And how do we do that? Through our behaviors. We give people a glimpse of this new system, a glimpse of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is at hand and then he heals somebody. Uh, There's invitation into this new system. There is life change that helps us get our our hearts and minds back in order with the system. And ultimately, it's this better way to be human, which is what Paul told us last week. And now we're going to continue in chapter 5, verse 1. Let me read it to you. 
you, uh, why does that seem odd? Because I'm reading the wrong one. Let me read out of what I have on here. It says this, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant, what is the word? Offering and, what is the word? Sacrifice to God. So in this new system, they are to imitate or mimic the, the example that Christ gave us, to embody the life that Jesus gave us the example of and follow in the ministry, and it is called, the, uh, the phrase given to us is, we are to walk in love. Now notice the sacrificial system stuff that's going on there. The wording used there, offering and sacrifice to God, is intentional, and it's so that the Jewish people there, he's, he's kept this this theme running in the background the whole time. He hasn't changed that. He wants the Jewish people to understand this isn't brand new. It's actually what you've always known from your scriptures in Genesis. We're just renewing that thing, okay? So in order to walk in love, Paul reveals a set of moral imperatives, a life change directive presented in three sets of three. All right, three sets of three. He's very ordered. He's kind of, the, the, you've heard the phrase, the, uh, the means is the message. Am I getting that right? The medium is the message? There we go. The medium is, the, I'm, I'm going extemporaneous. I, I should stick to my notes. But he wants us to reorder something that's been unordered, and he's giving it to us in a very specific, calculated order. He's teaching us through the way he's writing this, not just the words. Verse three says this, first set. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. All right, that's the first set of three and it's taking our behaviors and trying to bring them into alignment with the identity that he has already spoken over us. Now, I'm gonna give a disclaimer real quick. If you grew up under the tutelage of purity culture, you were just like twitching a little bit, like, oh no. And this is what I wanna say. I think we're in a different season. We're in a different level of awareness. The scriptures still say what the scriptures say. I don't care what Joshua Harris wrote. Okay, so, so let, us, let us try to recapture or reimagine this. And, and let me say too, I had some good conversations with some friends um, who grew up where this was just pounded into their head. Where this was, um, uh, so much shame was heaped on this that it's like, I don't even want you mentioning that title. And, and look, I, I didn't grow up under that. So it doesn't have quite the same punch that it does I'm aware that it's there but I came into the church late and I was like I don't know you, none of those people had authority in my life anyways yet right the pastor was speaking people were talking but I, I just barely knew Jesus so they kind of had authority in my life but if they told me things I was really like eh, maybe maybe not sounds good and eventually my life came into alignment with some of those things but the honest answer is like we still have to wrestle with these verses as they are because they're in the scripture all right so let's erase that to the best of our ability. I know it's not 100% possible. And let's kind of walk in this with a fresh set of eyes that he is telling us that our behavior comes into alignment with an identity that we've been given. It's simply saying, act like the person God has already called you. All right, I want you to keep hearing that. This is the main point of last week. These things are not just arbitrary 
bad things pulled out of the air. These are three specific sets of things that he is wanting to bring up very intentionally. They're the traits of the system that has taken love and scrambled it. Okay, so, so their culture had sexual perversion, selfishness, it had impurity, it had greed, just like ours does today. And so on the one hand, and let me, let me give you kind of two categories. On the one hand, you can definitely, there, there, there is a set of virtues and values, right? There are these things that we can choose, vices, okay? And this could, and in some sense, I'm not delegitimizing it, but I think it's the only one we hear is there's the good things to do and the bad things to do. So get out your checklist and do the right things. And every culture has their set of vices and virtues. And in every context that we're in, no matter if it's this city or any other city that you've ever been a part of, you are constantly trying to figure out which parts of my culture need to be rejected, which parts of the culture I'm in need to be redeemed, which parts of the culture need to be received. All right, let me break that down just a little bit, and then we'll move to the other category. Rejected means that it is rooted in a system of bad Elohim. The Bible calls this the doctrine of demons. Idolatry. It's rooted in greed, and it has to be rejected. This is not compatible with the kingdom of heaven. Then there are things in our world that need to be redeemed. They are not in and of themselves problematic. They are inherently good, but somehow, someway, we have overindulged in this thing. Or we have taken it out of the context, the boundaries that God gave them to thrive so that they uh, would be able to be taken in. And then you have the third, which is receive. Some things are just fine the way they are. They're okay. You can receive these things in our culture just as they are. They are compatible. And that's, that's the tension we're all living in, right? We're all trying to figure out what needs to be rejected, re- redeemed, and received. Okay? Vices and virtues. I'm going to step over here. On the other hand, my hypothetical categories, they also represent something bigger than just behavioral yeses and nos. These three things... Immorality, impurity, and greed as a defining, are, are meant to be a defining contrast to the earlier mandate of walking in love. So now, now we're like, now we're reorienting these things. So, so let me keep saying this. So Paul uses these descriptions so that he can depict them as the opposite of what love is. So that he can understand, I love the way Dr. Lynn Coick said it, and we'll, we'll, I'll read a quote from her in just a second. Uh, you could say that these three things are examples of love disordered, scrambled. So these are the opposite of love. And, and the idea is to get us back into alignment with love. Okay, now let me read this. Dr. Lynn Coick um, is a brilliant professor who for a while she was up at Northern Seminary in Chicago. I don't know what she, where she's at now, but she was the one entrusted to write the, 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 um, the NIV commentary um, for, for Ephesians. Uh, and if you're into commentaries, buy it for sure. It's great. Um, it says this, and, and the reason I picked her quote is I think it's good. She doesn't shy away from telling us the direct truth about these things, but she also doesn't place it, any one of them as, any one of these behaviors as any worse than the other. All right? Catch it. She says, our post-Freudian era holds that almost all sexual expression is good, and any curtailing of sexual desire leads to repressive mental ailments. We confuse love with sexual satisfaction. 
We also live with pervasive consumerism enabled by crony capitalism that dulls our senses to the damaging power of excessive consumption. Paul sees no reason to apologize for a holy life, a life that decries sin and embraces goodness. Okay, that's half the quote. Sit in that for a little bit. And let me read the second part because she adds this. Paul sees no reason to apologize for a holy life, a life that decries sin and embraces goodness. Perhaps we have an allergy to the term holiness because today it is understood as a holier-than-thou attitude and judgmental hypocrisy. The church is partly to blame for this perception. We gotta take some accountability here. The church is partly to blame for the perception because it has defined holiness at times as only avoiding sexual sins or as following a list of do's and don'ts. Paul stresses the importance of becoming like Christ, which involves both the pursuit of virtue and the avoidance of sin because it defines love for us. uh, Dr. Lynn Coick's accuracy for telling the truth, it hits for the Ephesian church and it hits for us whose lives and existence are in a a cultural placement today. Right, we, we are humans in a specific cultural system of America in Indianapolis as capitalists in a 20, we're, we're 21st century folk, we can't get around it. And, and in the midst of this, it kind of stings as she says it that directly, but also you can't make the adjustment if you can't view yourself accurately where you're at, if you can't assess your flaws. If you can't try to make that change. And so um, I try not to do this too often. I think it can get goofy. Um, but um, as, I've been, as I've been training for, for, for I took up a new sport, boxing. As I've been training for boxing, um, one of the things that my coach said to me early on, I was prepping for an event that I was going to box in, and, um, and I, was, I was super frustrated. And he's like, no, man, this is, this is good. This is where you want to find this stuff out. He's like, yeah, you're, you're really bad at keeping your right hand up to guard your face. Real bad at that. So what happens? I get punched in the right side of my face a lot. Cool. Uh, You want to know that's a problem here and not when you get into this competition because that person's going to exploit it and it's going to hurt a lot worse in that situation. Okay, so, so he's reorienting this problem, letting me know that, no, no, it's good, but you got to work on it. Figure it out now. Let's do this now. We're doing so, so doctor slash coach Lynn is simply trying to help us see where the flaws are in our game so that we can tighten up our ability to walk in love better. All right? Verse four, let's keep moving. The next set of three. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. So this second set is tied very specifically to words, to speech. Um, The Jewish New Testament commentary mentions that sexuality, insolent speech, and sexual humor were often common in ancient Gentile society, as they were in many societies today. Paul did not accommodate the culture. Sexual humor was highlighted, for example, and catch this, in mimes used for entertainment. Bro, when you come after the mimes, because their joking is a little too coarse, I don't... My imagination can't even fathom what they're doing, okay? They're coming after the mimes. You got to clean up your act, mimes. But this was a common form of entertainment. He's telling them right here, look, we need to make sure that it's not, that we're not finding our, um, our entertainment in these things that are actually 
uh, not helpful for us becoming loving people. All right? If the mimes are going to get it, so are we. Is there a gang of mimes out there? I, I don't know. West Side Story. I, I, I tried to imagine. I don't know. Okay, okay so uh, I, did, I didn't plan this. Um, I made a joke about this last week. So, so what do you entertain your mind with? All right, whatever you feed the most is going to win your heart over. Um, I can't remember who it was, a famous theologian, depicted our lives as, as two dogs that we're feeding, and whichever one we feed the most is going to win over. So we're going to feed the good things in our life, or we're going to feed the bad things. Whichever one we nourish best is going to win that fight when it comes down to it, okay? I'll leave it there. Paul counteracts the negative things by introducing a remedy in the form of thanksgiving. So if your mouth is filled with these obscenities, with these coarse jokings, he's saying the antidote to that is to fill your mouth with praises to the extent that you don't have time or room in your speech to say anything negative, anything coarse, anything that would be considered uh, inappropriate that comes out of your mouth. The next set of three says this. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Okay, so, so Paul pretty much restated the first three things. Did you catch that? It's just a restatement of the first three things. But I want you to notice that he named them as out of place, as connected to their identity, and now he, uh, he frames them differently. This time he ties them to idolatry and to something called an inheritance. Well, well the idolatry connection is this statement of ultimate allegiance. And they mean that in this time. People were pledging their allegiance to all kinds of things in the midst of this. You have a city filled with idols to Artemis, to Greek emperors, to cults, to, to, to the bad Elohim, the demons. And it's forcing this question right now. If you are a follower of Christ, then why are you acting in a way that shows devotion and worship and allegiance with habits that represent the false gods, the emperors? the idols. It's directly connected to their worship. The inheritance part of this then is the natural conclusion. And we typically have this attached to heaven and hell, right? Um, and, and I'm not even saying that that's not true uh, necessarily, but uh, we get a lot of that. So let me redirect that a little bit. The inheritance portion is this idea of the natural conclusion to your allegiance to whatever idol you've been worshiping will work itself out into a set of consequences. And so um, there's a distinction here between the inheritance of an idolater and the inheritance of the kingdom. Remember, in chapter 1, we get a lot of talk about being heirs to a kingdom which has a set of behaviors. So just as there are negative traits that display adoration to something other than Jesus, there are positive traits and habits which are to be lived out, showing traits of the kingdom that show allegiance to that kingdom, and they have the ability to establish the heavenly kingdom community on earth. So here's, here's one, uh, at least a portion of our inheritance as kingdom people. If we actually lived like this, and created a society that was built on these ideas, these virtues, in walking in love, we would have the ability to live in a community and culture that is the kingdom of heaven. Could you imagine that? How, how incredible would it be to actually have done this to the extent that now we actually literally have heaven on earth? 
And there's a set that has hell on earth. And he said, like, give that up. Heaven on earth, here and now. Now, Paul brings this into a fuller conclusion. Let me read it. Verse 6, it says, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. And you might ask, well, how does that make anything that he just said clear? Okay, well, let's have a nice friendly chat about God's wrath real quick. All right? Awkward pause. Um, we can truncate this. As I said, like I'm trying to figure out what, what is the angle that we get to see this differently um, than the way maybe it was depicted in previous generations. Well, we can truncate this and just simply say it's an it's, it's a immoral, greedy people go to hell. Or we can see something deeper that's going on here. So I want you to listen to a couple of verses um, on how God's wrath tends to work. Romans 1.18 um, through 24, um, and, and it's a little bit longer, but sit with me. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God or gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. Do you see that there's a parallel between what, what Ephesians is dealing with and this? Now listen to verse 24. Therefore, God gave them over in, sin, in their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. The idea of giving something over slash turning them over, giving them up to, comes up again in verses in uh, 1 Corinthians 5 and in 1 Timothy 1. So it's not just an isolated incident, but here's the question. How does God's wrath tend to work? By giving us a choice to follow his system, his order, or to go to this other system and this other order that doesn't walk in love, that doesn't follow Jesus, that doesn't imitate God, and if they choose that, it hands them over to the consequences of that system. Why? So that you can learn that the system's a failure. I don't know if you have heard God being depicted as a punishing, judgmental, hateful person. That's not what's happening. This is, this is course correction. This is love in the form of discipline. This is love in the form of trying to make sure that we get back to, like, I'm trying to tell you this system's broken. Stop following the bad system. They're demons. They don't like you. They're not your friend. They don't get to define love. Come back to my system. Walk in love. Follow the ways that I'm telling you. Interestingly, we're being saved from ourselves. And we have to go to God to, to find these things um, and, and understand and define them the way that he would define them. And when these things happen, he says, okay, so if you're not going to follow me, please follow me. Please follow me. Come on. Follow me. Let's do this. Let's be partners together in this uh, new creation, in this new kingdom. I want you here. If you choose to go in that system, I'm telling you, it's got some consequences and you're not gonna, it's not going to be good. 
this old human condition, this old family, and the way of, of, of its um, system, that's the inheritance that you get if you choose that. Not only is it connected to this self-defined way of the former humanity, it has an inheritance, and we can call it self-destruction. I heard one theologian say, just as God has shown us that there is an old, darkened way to live with an inheritance to be had, we learn that we are heirs of a new inheritance in chapter one. It's an enlightened way to live, which is part of, Paul's, uh, part of what Paul expands on. He's literally letting the old human, old family, old system destroy itself. Okay, but there's another way. You can choose to walk in love. It's hard. Like, there's a submission to that, right, in our own hearts and minds. Like, we have to, I had to, at 17 years old, decide all the things I thought were right, wrong, and, and good. Are, I'm, I'm submitting them to your redefinition, Jesus Christ. Correct me. Course correct me. Now, I had lived in that other world long enough to know it wasn't going to end well for me. I don't know if you have. I don't know your... Um, your experience with the old system. I can personally say it's not going to work out. Paul is trying to tell you it's not going to work out. Let me read this last section. I know we're, we're, running, we're running a little bit long. Um, let me finish this last section and then we'll close it up for today. Um, verse 8 says, and this is a long section here, of the, just ending this little uh, part that we're teaching on. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. Identity, again. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. You see the natural outworking of the new system. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness. Rather, expose them because it's shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed to the light becomes visible and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. And then he breaks out in this beautiful hymn. This is why it is said, wake up, O sleeper. Rise from the dead. And Christ, the Messiah, will shine on you. L listen to what he's doing. He's trying to inspire you to want to make the right choice. Paul is really getting everything he can out of this light and dark metaphor, right? I mean, he's milking it for all it's got in it. But he's really trying to help us understand there's a contrast that has an end result that, that we want to be on the right side of. And as we look at verses specifically, look at verses 11 and 13, um, I don't see the, oh, oh, we don't have the things in there. Uh, um, exposing connected to um, darkness. Verses 11 and 13 together talk about this idea of exposing, and there's two ways that we can kind of take this idea. Um, and, and, and in different times in my life, they've meant different things. So let me give you both. One is, when you see something bad happening, confront it. Expose it. Um, we can do that really poorly, and we can do that really well. I, I heard someone say that I, I know, I know the, um, the, the way to keep all marriages healthy. I know the way um, to keep them all good. I know the way to, um, to uh, the, the key to fixing all of these things. It was at a conference this week, and a comedian said it like this. The key to making all these things work is conflict, and we're all avoiding it. The same is true inside of any community. We, ha we can't forsake conflict as if it's bad. There is a right and a wrong way to do it. Amen? Yes. Has anyone been on the opposite end of that? There's a right way and a wrong way. There's a way in which someone can confront me, and it's nothing but, you're right. I'm so sorry. 
And there's a way that inspires defensiveness and doesn't get us anywhere. Um, So that's one way. I think the other way to take this is that you still have darkness in you and you hide it. And God is saying there are times when you need to shed more light on that thing and repent and confess it so that others can help shore up that burden with you. I've mentioned this one time before. I had a sin in my life that I wanted to get rid of and I was trouble, tr- struggling to get it out of my system, couldn't do it, and I finally thought the best thing to do was to email a celebrity pastor and tell him about it. That's safe enough. I got no transparency in that situation. He's probably never going to email me back, but Louis Giglio did. One line, one line. It sounds like you haven't exposed it to enough light yet. And I said, yep, that's it. And I had to go to a pastor to say, I need you to hold me accountable. I need you to text me at 10 o'clock to tell me where, what, where are you at right now? Whose house are you at right now? And, and call me every night and call in and check in the next day and ask me, well, how's your spiritual life and what's going on in your ministry and what's leading you to want to go and do these other things? What, 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 what kind of light needed to be shed on this thing? Um, I'm going to lean towards this one, but don't forsake the conflict side of this. Darkness needs to be exposed to light if you really want it to die. Okay? All right. Let's apply this um, into, into our lives. What light is God shedding on the darkness in your life? What light is God using you to shed, or what, what darkness is God using you to shed light upon so that you can be a part of a solution inside of our culture? I, I love this, this last thing. It said, the presumption of the text is that light is power that transforms. This isn't destroy wrathful disobedience this is course correction back into walking in the way of love that allows us to understand we actually wanted to be here anyways and God's kindness like I said last week leads us to repentance so what is he drawing you towards what aspect of your life is he saying that's actually darkness it's not light can you get rid of that do you trust me enough to get rid of that Is there something that you've been holding on to that you need to bring some other believers into and confess it and say, look, I need you to hold me accountable to this. I have to shed some more light on whatever that thing is if I really want this thing to be worked out of our life. And again, this week I heard someone say, truth without grace and grace without truth are both bad. In fact, both are forms of cruelty. We can't have one without the other. All right? Let light be the power that light is meant to to be, um, and, and, um, and let, let me say this, um, if you perpetuate the patterns and behaviors that are in contradiction to your identity, that will eventually eat you alive. Will it not? So for your own benefit, for the sake of all that God is trying to do in your life, get it out of you before it consumes you before it eats you alive. Because these convictions start to settle in. I mentioned this just in passing one other time. There's been times where I wanted sin out of me so bad I was willing to pray that God would just take my life. I can't stop this. Can you just, can you just like, if I'm gonna do it again, I'm, I'm not doing it again, I'm not gonna do it. But I've said this before. So if I'm gonna do it again, can you just end me? That's not healthy. That's not a healthy place. That sin was eating me alive because I was unwilling to shed light on it. Um, and so this is, this is, this is my encouragement to you. Get your identity in alignment with, your behavior's in alignment with your identity. Um, 
And, and if that's not true, if your identity hasn't shifted, then hear the words of this poem. Wake up. Wake up and let the light of Christ shine on you. Feel the heat of that sunshine on you. And know that there is hope to get out of this darkness. There is something new. There is something better. Wake up and get out of it. Okay, let's pray. So Lord, thank you for this group of people that you've brought here today. We are agents of the new system and we're also a a work in progress, trying to become new systems ourselves. And so Lord, as we're working on one, would you allow the light to just slowly melt away the darkness in us? And then would you allow the light that's in us slowly melt away the darkness in whatever uh, uh, family system I'm in? And then would you allow those families who have become light to melt the darkness in the systems of the areas that we inhabit this entire city known as Indianapolis, Father, we ask for you to make us children of light, that we would walk in that inheritance that is so good and glorious and has the fruit that we really want. So let us taste and know of that goodness and let us understand that the fruit and inheritance of the way that is not love, of the scrambled old system is rotten. Give us a distaste for those things. And so, Father, we walk out encouraged humbled but encouraged and understanding that you are a loving God who is loving us back into the loving system that you originally created and inviting us to be a part of that new system. We ask for all these things right now in the name of Jesus Christ and all God's people said, amen, amen.